Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sports Dome Podcast, second Ashes match, day one breakdown. The state of play currently is that England won the toss on day one at Lords on, on an overcast morning, overcast day for, for the majority of part, on, on, on a green pitch. It did have quite a bit of moisture. Um, Australia have finished 339 for 5 after 83 overs. Steve Smith not out at 85, Alice Carey not out at 11, David Warner contributed with 66, Travis Head contributed with 77, and I guess Marlis Labashain also contributed with 47 for England. The pick of the balls was Joe Root, 2 for 19 after 8 overs, while Josh Tung also had 2 wickets for 88 runs after 18 overs, economy close to 5. Australia ahead of the game. Uh, I think that's pretty obvious. Uh, I think England's performance was quite—it was quite unbasable, um, if you were to put it that way, because there weren't actually many funky fields. It for once didn't seem like they had a plethora of plans. For once, it didn't seem like they were even trying to get wickets. It just seemed very abject, lifeless, and poor bowling. Um, but let's start from the top. Let's start from the the pitch and, and the team selections. To an extent, it seemed England had gone away from the plan initially at the start of the summer, which Ben Stokes said to be um, was to create fast, flat pitches. This pitch certainly had more moisture in it, but it wasn't fast. We'll discuss that later on when I focus on the pitch. Um, in the first nine overs, uh, there were not as as Crick was treated. Their work is great. There were 2.5 degrees of lateral movement, the most in England since the start of 2022. That coincides with the start of the baseball era. So this was the pitch with the most moisture, the most grass, the most movement that the pitch provided. It was most conducive for swing bowling since the start of 2022. Why I think England potentially realised that the, the bowling attack doesn't have the weapons that they need. There's no Joffre Archer. Mark Wood is apparently not fit. Ollie Stone, Saki Mahmood, we know they were injured. Mark Wood is probably the only pacing option they had, and as we said, he's not fit. So Jay Broad and Josh Tunk uh, as the variety. So they thought that in Anderson, Broad, and Robinson, those docile pitches from the first um, test match is not going to help them in any way. So they thought, we need some more swing. We need some more moisture. So then I guess the call to play an extra seamer was, was justified. In, from Australia's lens, I think it was... I think the change that they made, which was Mitchell Stark came in from Scott Boland, was perhaps a, a change for the sake of it, rather than actually reading the conditions. I think if Boland is going to play any test match in England, you felt this was the pitch you would play on with the most sort of um, assistance for the, for the for the nippy bowlers, and especially not the pitch at Edgbaston. You wouldn't say that Scott Boland is a person whose his skill set is suited for that docile pitch at Edgbaston. Um, so that was interesting from Australia's end, but yeah, for England it seemed that ooh, they actually sort of reacted to the fact that their bowling attack is not the bowling attack that is really sort of ready for flat pitches. They need assistance, so that was changed instantly. And it'll be interesting to see as the Test match progresses how their batting copes with the the, the more movement on offer. Because um, looking at it just from a from a point of view right now, you could see Zach Crawley, Ben Duckett in trouble with the swinging ball and going hard. You, you could see England potentially being two down pretty early. But it is. In the first spell, or at least the first spell, and then the five-minute rain delay, and then the stint after, there were two dropped catches. Uh, I'm not sure if you can classify Roots one uh, as a dropped catch, because it did carry, but it's practically at an angle, which was impossible to catch. You sort of have to scoop it, or he has to just react faster and get like 
a bit of a further lunge or a dive forward to get a sort of a full grasp of that catch. Um, but Ollie Pope definitely should have taken this catch. Um, just didn't get into a good position at all. And that was the difference between sort of winning the toss, bowling first, putting the opposition in on a cloudy and a green day. And um, the difference is early wickets and those two catches would have got the early wickets and would have gone to Smith and Labuschagne ahead earlier. But what happened was that they dropped them and the openers saw off the new spell. England were quite tight, I, I thought, in the opening spell. I don't think there were major faults with England's bowling in the opening spell. I think England's lacklustre bowling came came out sort of uh, in the middle of the day, sort of after after David Warner got out. Um, I thought England were quite tight in the opening spell. Perhaps the length was a bit short. Um, they weren't sort of challenging the edge and the stumps enough but easily could have been 30 for 2 if, if that those catches had been taken but it wasn't and the partnership with Osman Khadra and David Warner thrived and I like to describe it as a partnership of antipodes Usman Khadra's late career bloom has come as a result of stability and security both of his mindset and technique he's said many a time now off the field that he, he feels more comfortable in his skin he feels secure in himself he, he knows um, who he is as a person, and I, I think he also knows who he is as a player. He knows what his sort of game plan is, he knows what his technical deficiencies and technical strengths are. He has a very clear game plan. Anything on his pants, anything short, and anything extremely full are his scoring shots. The edge bust 100, think of that. Everything pulled, everything flicked, everything driven that was extremely full. Anything else? That lazy looking typical Esman Quadra nonchalant defense where he rests deep in his crease and just prods his bat forward as late as is possible and the ball is played right under his eyes. The ball is played right under his eyes was a scene was a scene that was common uh, on day one. There was one quadra's exact um exact score. Let me let me put that for you guys. Seventeen of seventy. Um I think it could have been a bit more. He could have probably got like 30, 25, 30 odd. There were a few pulls that he missed out on. There were a few flicks he missed out on. He wasn't in his his his, his most fluent rhythm. But I, I, I don't think he should actually get that much criticism for his knock because they needed that they needed that sort of rigidity, that stability, that stubbornness that Quadra provides at that time. If he went out of the mold that he bats in, I reckon he would have nicked off. And in fact, Joe Root was this close from him being nicked off. And them seeing through, essentially, that first session together in very tricky, tough conditions, the most tricky since 2022, as that quick stat suggested, ensured that Labuschagne Smith had uh, had sort of an easier job. I'm not going to say their job was easy, because I think uh, Labuschagne Smith and Head all had uh, a few patchy moments in the innings. Maybe Labuschagne and Head, Smith was imperious in, in control, as usual. But it was sort of... A productive session, I think, is the best way I would define it from Rosman Quadra. And on the other end of sort of what Rosman Quadra achieved was, as I said, the perfect antipode to Rosman Quadra, David Warner. He has looked much more busy in the series, coming down the crease, at times premeditating and going back in the crease, constantly moving, essentially. Sometimes he even came outside the line of off stump, and um, the most extreme part of coming out, uh, outside the line of off stump, and I guess the most extreme part of his busy nature at the crease was perhaps a slog sweep that he played of Stuart Broad. That was a, a frankly ridiculous shot. Um, but it showed, I think it showed the message that Warner is sort of, I think he's feeling a bit more fluent and a bit more comfortable at the crease. Um, for those that play cricket, you uh, especially have bowled, you know that a bowling rhythm is very important. Like, it's essentially this sort of 
rhythm in your run-up rhythm in your action and it creates a sense of repeatability and i think to an extent is directly proportional to confidence in your bowling i think with batting this scene i think batting rhythm is also sort of a a qualitative measure of batting success because I, I think David Warner seems to have found some rhythm in his batting. He seems to have found a game plan that works because he looked good in the World Test Championship. He looked good in the first test, I thought. And now, in the second test, he finally had a knock of substance and I, I think he's, I think that's the result of a sort of a clear game plan and a clear intention. Anything, and I think that clear game plan and intention being that anything that he can bat on, that he can get bat to, he wants to be on the front foot looking to time and punch a ball into the gap and get a strike. So he's not afraid to leave, but he's saying that anything that I think I can play, I want to score off. I don't want to hit it like hard. I don't want to push at it. I just want to time it, under my eyes and punch it into a gap and get a strike. Whether it goes to four, two, three, one, it doesn't matter. He just wants to rotate the strike and keep the scoreboard moving. Why? Because he doesn't want the likes of Broad to come out and ball after ball. What does he do with the bad balls? He pounces on them. But the difference between the two, I think, the difference between Usman Khaja and David Warner being, and why they're the perfect antipodes, is that Warner is happy to score off any ball, while Khaja's scoring options are primarily off balls with ill discipline. One shows more sort of defensive soundness, and the other one shows, I guess, more intent and uh, and, and a sort of a more enthusiasm in taking the scoreboard over. And I think the sort of... The difference in game plan was the catalyst for England losing discipline after 15 overs in the first session. From Kwaja, they were getting nothing, so they sort of had to just stick at it or maybe try a few other planets. For Warner, they were getting a lot of everything, so the lengths kept changing, the lines kept changing, and they sort of just lost their discipline after 15 overs in the first session. There was a full toss from Stuart Broad. Um, Josh Tung had a pretty nervy start. Anderson was far too short at the start of the second spell, and all of a sudden Australia raced to 70 for none after 22 overs, and they were looking like they were going to go unscathed for the whole session until Usman Khwaja had a major brain fade. Let me tell you why this is a brain fade. The over before, so Josh Tung's second last over before lunch, not his last over, his last over was the one where he got Usman Khwaja out. The second last over before lunch, he went, um, he went around the wicket. And he was bowling predominantly in swingers to David Warner. And David Warner was like, it was exaggerated in swingers because David Warner was getting cramped. He was reacting late and he was reacting in a quite a shocked manner. The classic sort of selling what a, what a delivery sort of sale. Um, so the in swinger was already working for him. So it was Martin Quadra. Hopefully should have read that. Warner should have talked to him. There should be some sort of communication. That, oh, mate, he's swinging the ball in quite a bit. So it was Martin Quadra should have expected the in swinger. He faces up, and the ball starts probably around 5th to 6th stump line, uh, I think that's generous to say, and then it swings in, and it basically hits between off and middle. I think you can still say the impact was off stump first, but it was sort of the the part of the off stump that's closest to the middle stump. It nearly hit the base of the middle stump full on. And it was one quarter just left that. And he should know that the baller is in swing, you know, the leave doesn't really make sense. It had to be a brain fade. It had to be a lack of judgment. Perhaps a, a loss of concentration. And for Usman Khwaja, unfortunately, his sort of hard work got spoiled because I think the runs would have come after. The runs would have come after lunch where England would have had to get a bit more funky with their plans um, because the first session didn't work for them. But unfortunately for Khwaja, it was not meant to be. But that hooping inswinger for Josh Tung, um, it was hooping. And David Warner found out just how. For David Warner's wicket, 
I was very impressed by the adjustment that Josh Tung made. The very ball before, or I think it was two balls before. Um, I'm not I'm not quite sure in the exact which ball it was. Warner got beaten and it just missed the stumps. Everyone's reaction was like, oh my god, how did that miss the stumps? If you look back at the replay, it went over the stumps. The length was a bit short. So what did Josh Tung do? Pitch it up a bit more. Got it to hoop the same amount in swing. And Warner knew it was an in-swing. Because he, this was like the third or fourth time he had been sort of nearly out or at least troubled by that hooping and swinger so he knew it was an in swinger yet he couldn't react to it in time and yet it went through his defenses that is ridiculously good bowling and quick uh, once again had a great stat they said that the ball would have dismissed a batter 19 percent of the time so one in five batters who faced that that same ball would have got out and it's the highest it had the highest sort of percentage rate for any ball in the test match up to delivery to dismiss the batter any criticism towards warner I think you can perhaps say he was pushing a bit too hard at that delivery. He was quite out in front of his body and the hands were quite hard. But it was it was just a great ball, I, I thought. Labuschagne Smith. I thought Labuschagne looked better. I, I thought he started to get into his strides. I think there were still a few issues. I think there was still sort of a, a few bad habits that had crept in. He's still chasing a few too many deliveries. I think they'll come with confidence and runs. Um, there were few, still a few nervy moments, still getting a lot outside the line of our stump, but he played much straighter, um, and I thought he played much better. There was there was a much much better control. Steve Smith, there's no words at this stage to describe what Steve Smith has achieved. He's a test match great. He's an all time test match great, and uh, I think that's the conclusion. He looked in control from from ball one, uh, other than that sort of edge where there was a clear sound, but there's no spike, which which was quite strange. Uh, there was nothing that really troubled Steve Smith. Uh, and I think England served up way too many pies, which sort of allowed him to settle in. After Warner got out, there was this period where Labuschagne and Smith both raced off to like 20 of, 20 of 30, like respectively. And there was this two full, two straight, and they were just pouncing on um, England, were sort of losing the plot. Ben Stokes came on, bowled two no balls, went for two fours, went for 12 off his first over. It was starting to slip away there. But then they got Labuschagne. But then probably came Australia's sort of... I think the reason Australia has a batting order may have potentially become the best batting order lineup in the world is primarily due to Travis Head. Steve Smith and Manus Labuschagne are good. We know that. Usman Khwaja's late career bloom has made Australia even better. David Warner now sort of to find his feet back again makes Australia even better. But... Oppositions knew before that if you get Quadra and if you get um, one of Smith and Lamachine and get into Head Green Carey, there are a few. There's a potential collapse there. But now with Travis Head, there's no potential collapse. There's he's a major wicket. You need to get Travis Head out, and his his sort of Test match career is remarkable now. He's close to three thousand runs. I think it's two thousand seven hundred runs, something like that. Average of forty eight. Strike rate is quite healthy. He's played close to 40 test matches. This is a very good test match career. And it's amazing how he's become so sort of clear and controlled in his game. His his range in his game is built perfectly for bad bowling. And it makes a whole lot of sense because in test match cricket, in a 90 of a day, there will be periods where the bowling won't be too good. There'll be a few loose balls in a spell. If there aren't, then the credit has to be given to a world-class attack. And I think to an extent, Head has earned the right to cash in on the bad bowling because he has shown that there are other dimensions to his game uh, in the World Test Century Final against India when it's really three down early on Head did, did a bit of stabilising then he cashed in even yesterday he looked a bit shaky at the start but then he cashed in
but I, I guess the sort of the the salient feature, the 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 salient strength of his game is that he looks to score off balls that others may defend in the clarity. He's like, this is my zone. Anything short, anything wide, anything that just isn't in that good length arc where I could nick off, I'm going to go at with hard hands. I'm, I'm going to hit. And if I do end up nicking off playing a shot that I, I think was there to play, so be it. My execution just didn't pay off. It wasn't the temperament. And I think that clarity, that intent, um, sort of very similar Baswell-esque um, template in terms of the way he bats, <coughs> Sorry, pardon me. Is I think what has led to a success. The bowlers, because the bowlers are never settled and always changing the lengths of plans. And the irony is that that. Yeah, the the irony is that his intent and his ability to cash on on the on the bad balls, or just balls that are in his zone, balls that he thinks he can hit, is actually what further causes this inconsistency, which is what he desires. The point being that because Travis Head is so much more aggressive than the other batters, batters at the other balls, ball, sorry, deliveries that the other batters may defend, may just nudge into a gap, may not attack as much as Travis Head attacks, they can't get away with now anymore. So then they have to change their lengths, they have to change their plans. And in changing a lot, they go away from that consistent temper of test match bowling, which causes more inconsistency, which is what Travis Head wants. He wants balls that aren't in that traditional template of just much bowling because that's what he sort of that's what allows him to obtain that bad ball that he wants to punish and I think um, Matt, Matt Roller wrote a great piece in Cricket Foot which sort of backed this point up it says that Travis had scored 46 of his 46% of his runs since his return um, in Test Match Cricket when he, when he was dropped for that brief period he scored 46% of his runs in the last session of a day with a strike rate of over 90 I think that makes a whole lot of sense uh, as sort of the bowlers tire and the bowlers get a bit more inconsistent and wearisome at the end of the day, Travis Head catch, cashes in. That's not to say that his runs don't count, sort of this, don't hold the same weight as runs made in the first two sessions. No, as I said, I think he's at the right to sort of get to the period where bad bowling comes because he fights out the tough periods and to an extent he also creates the bad bowling through his intent. So the point being that Travis Head is a is one of the major batters in in Test Match Cricket, but in the Australian team, that 3-4-5 is now the major wickets you need. It's not just number 3 and 4, it's 3-4-5, and to an extent also is Monokaja, and maybe even David Warden now. I think for England, um, it was a poor performance, uh, as we sort of already stated. One, I think it was bad bowling. But I think two... The pace of the pitch still didn't, in my opinion, suit England. With the bowlers that they have, Ollie Robinson, Stuart Broad, James Anderson. James Anderson will average around 133 to 135 kilometers. Ollie Robinson will be 78 to 79 miles an hour, which is not very quick. Broad will be around that 130, 135 mark to maybe get to 140 max, but he didn't really do that much yesterday. And Josh Tung will be the quicker one. He'll be in the 140s, 145s. The pace of this pitch was still quite slow. It wasn't the fast pitch. It wasn't the, the the swing wasn't quick. The movement off the pitch wasn't quick, and I think that was indicated with how low the ball was keeping early on. So I think spin will actually have a decent role towards the end. But yeah, the pace of the pitch wasn't actually that quick. I think it was still on the slower side, and therefore I think the movement was quite slow. The movement off the wicket was quite slow, and it was easily be able to be adjusted by the likes of Quadra, Warren, Labuschagne, Smith, and that sort of. I guess, absorbed the venom that was in that sort of 2.5, 2.3 degrees of movement that, that was there in the first session from England. 
And yeah, I, I think I lost the plot. I think there were two periods in which I lost the plot. One was the period when they bowled to Labuschagne and Smith directly after Warner got out. And then the other period was the one after Labuschagne got out and Head sort of got through his scratchy start. Then they bowled so many bad deliveries. Uh, Josh Tung, I, I thought he showed a lot of positives, but I, was, I also think he showed the rawness that is his action and that is his sort of skills right now. His short ball isn't that very well controlled, is it? I know, I know that's the role that Ben Stokes wants him to play. He wants to be the enforcer. But it just sits up and it's there to be hit. There were far too many half volleys, far too many balls in the pads. And there weren't actually many funky plans as well. I, I don't know if Ben Stokes trusted that because the pitch is still doing... The ball is still moving, the pitch is still sort of helping them in terms of moisture that they should have stick to the plans. I mean, at the end, they went short ball to Travis Head, but they missed the point. Travis Head isn't like... He doesn't necessarily get out on the pull, the pull shot or the hook shot much in the deep. What happens, how Travis Head usually gets out is when he gets cramped on, around that sort of like weird like armpit area. So you, you need sort of that sort of bowling, not just like bounces for the sake of it to sit up that he, and he can pull. And yeah, the bowling was lifeless. They ran out of plans and there wasn't control and Head and Smith utterly punished them. Uh, I think Joe Root bought them two wickets from the sort of the dead in the, in the last in the last part of the day, and I think they're lucky that they got those two wickets, because otherwise it could have already been gained on. It's very similar, actually, to that World Test Championship day, where um the majority of the work was actually done in the first session, when Warner and Labuschagne got through it, but then they lost a few sort of silly wickets, and Dan Smith and Head cashed in when India just bowled quite poorly. Only difference is India didn't get those two wickets at the end of the day, so they came back when Smith and Head were on, both in on hundreds, it was, oh, well, Smith was close to 100, and there were 340 for three, I think that was the score, and you already sort of sense at that, that stage, oh, the test match might be over, um, because England have got these two wickets, I think they've got a bit more breathing room, but you feel that they have to bowl straight out for 450 max, you, you'd feel, you, you say they need Carey or Smith, one of them early, obviously both of them would be ideal, but they need to get in those Stark Cummins, um, Lion regions early, and hopefully they don't wag either, the test match is nicely poised, and I'll be back tomorrow for a day two review. If you are enjoying these reviews, it would be much appreciated if you could drop a follow on your podcast app to my podcast, drop any good reviews on your podcast app, and also share it and get in contact with me, any feedback. Always looking to grow. These reviews will be daily. Be back again tomorrow for another intriguing day of Ashes Cricket. Thank you.